This is Chapter 88 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, driverless cars, a doomsday spy thriller, and a trip down memory lane. Whether you like it or not, we're inching closer to a future in which driverless cars will rule the road. In fact, transportation expert Sam Schwartz predicts in his new book, No One at the Wheel, that people will be banned from driving their own cars by the middle part of this century. Wow. So how does he think things will play out? Our Paul Murnane found out. Change is something that we realize happens only years later. It's something we look back on. And there's a change that's happening right now. It's already started. In fact, when it comes to autonomous vehicles, the self-driving car, it's a conversation that the automobile industry has been having almost since cars were invented. This has been going on for decades. And who better to take a look at the rise of the autonomous vehicle than Sam Schwartz? Uh, Delighted to be here. Everything that happens has a reaction. There's a consequence for everything. And it's all a matter, I guess, from your point of view, is how we manage the rise of the autonomous self-driving car, right? Exactly. I mean, there's so many wonderful things that happen. First of all, so many people with disabilities cannot get a driver's license if they have visual impairment or they have some kind of motor skill impairment or uh, they've reached an age where they can no longer drive a car. So it's spectacular for people to be able to get driver's licenses. Maybe there won't even be an age limit for driver's licenses, and even children could get the effect of a driver's license. The problem, though, is it's going to put a lot more people on the road. And most studies of driverless cars show that there will be an increase in traffic, an increase in vehicle miles traveled. And so congestion could get much worse. Uh, There's also the fear uh, that it will change the way we live in profound ways, particularly in cities. It's going to be wonderful in rural areas, but in rural areas, for the most part, you don't need driverless cars, although there is that safety aspect to it. But in cities, the driverless car isn't going to work very well because you've got pedestrians, you have bicycle riders, you have people that that want to get from point A to point B. You have other drivers that aren't going to know what the driverless car is doing. So in fact, in cities, it could make things worse. And sooner or later, they're going to have to make these work in New York City. Uh, What advice? I mean, you were New York City Traffic Commissioner. I think at one point you told me that you began your career with the Lindsay administration. I started with the Lindsay administration, (laughs) and I was driving a cab before that. So, What's the advice that you would offer the maker of these vehicles? How are we going to make these work in an environment like New York City? Yeah, I think there has to be teamwork. They have to – we have to have an agreement between government – Um, the auto manufacturers, the people that are putting all the intelligence into these cars, and set some ground rules. In my book, I call them street typology. So the street typology means there are some zones where a car can't possibly go. You could tell it to ride on the pedestrian way or the bike way, and it's not going to go there. Then you have some other streets that are largely pedestrian with a mix of cars, and the car has to go very slowly. You could tell the car, I want to go 30 miles an hour. It's not going to go faster than, say, 8 or 9 miles an hour. And then you have streets with schools, and the car can't go faster than 20. And then you have major streets where it can go faster. And then streets, freeways, where it can go 100 miles an hour quite safely. So 
we need that type of agreement. It's not going to work well in urban areas unless the vehicle goes very, very slowly. That's what I spell out in my book, No One at the Wheel. And it's going to be a point at which we have the autonomous vehicles sharing space with people who are still driving, the famous New York drivers. And these vehicles are going to have to, by necessity, they're going to have to take a back seat, not just to those New York drivers, but to the pedestrians and to all the other distractions that we have in New York City streets. So these cars are going to be, it's, it's, it's going to get you to your destination slower or later, in, in ultimately? Yeah. It's a period that we've gone through before in a way, and that is the period from 1900 to 1930, when suddenly uh, the car appeared on the scene, uh, mixing with horses, mixing with pedestrians, mixing with streetcars, tremendous confusion, tremendous chaos, and it was the bloodiest period in, on American roads. More people were killed per capita, and for the most part, children uh, were killed during that period. So it was an awful period, and then the car essentially took over. Pedestrians who used to cross any, anywhere they wanted, suddenly that was criminalized. They, they couldn't do that. So we're going to have a period where these driverless cars are going to have starts and stops. Pedestrians, especially in New York City, they walk out into the first lane. Uh, how does a, an autonomous car know they're not continuing? So you're going to see the autonomous car uh, move a couple of feet, stop, move a couple of feet, stop. So yes, it's going to be slower in New York City. And what I hope they don't do is what they did with a car and marginalize the pedestrian and say the autonomous vehicle works perfectly without people. It's people that are a problem. So let's fence in the pedestrians, treat them like cattle, and then have cattle shoots at the corner, let them cross periodically. Yeah, if you want to look at the bright side of this, uh, it is a chance to to remake our city streets, to have a, a conversation and to think again about how we use the limited space that we have. It's a real wonderful opportunity to rethink everything that we do, all of our space, first of all, you're going to need a fraction of the parking that you have today. What a great discussion. To What are we going to do with hundreds of thousands of parking spaces? Do we turn that into housing? Do we turn it into parks? Do we turn it into businesses? That is an absolutely great discussion. Yeah. How do we treat streets that are like Fifth Avenue where people want to walk and enjoy? Well, it turns out if the autonomous vehicle does look like the car of today, which it may not, by the way, and I point that out in my book, uh, then the car can go almost as if it's on a tracked path, very narrow lanes. And it means an opportunity to take the crowded sidewalks of Fifth Avenue and widen them because far more pedestrians move on the sidewalks than they move on the roadways. So we can visualize a totally different city if we do it right. I'm afraid we might get it wrong. It's going to be a different world because – Everyone will be using the car. Dad will take it to work. He'll get out. It'll go home. It'll pick up the kids and take them to school. It, it may then go back and pick up mom and take her to work or take her to wherever she needs to go. And the vehicle never stops. It just keeps going. Maybe families chip in and they, 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 they share a vehicle. These vehicles are in constant motion. So we come to a place where New York City is not a place for parking. It's just a place where these streets are in constant motion with these autonomous vehicles. And it's happening sooner than we think, right? Yeah, I mean, we have a version of that. I mean, Uber and Lyft and Via are versions of an autonomous vehicle in a sense. You press an app 
and a vehicle appears in 10 years, that driver will not be sitting behind the wheel of the Uber and it'll be a car that comes to pick you up. But you brought up a good point, and that is a good deal of the miles traveled by these vehicles will have nobody in them. I call those zombie cars. And what that does is, is adds a lot of miles. The description of the family that makes multiple stops. Right now, that family has one or two cars and decides to congregate several of the trips into one. But if you have the autonomous vehicle, it could go back and forth without a driver and perhaps double the miles. Most estimates are the amount of traffic increase will be between 60% increase to 100% increase. And that means our streets more crowded than ever with motor vehicles, unless we're smart about it. But the interim period, how car drivers are going to react, meaning manual car drivers to these other vehicles, is going to be a bit chaotic. And how does it work with transit? People, I guess, in in areas where the subway station is a, a distant walk, they'll jump in this vehicle, take it to the subway station, maybe jump on the subway or jump on the commuter train, and then the vehicle doesn't come all the way into the city center. It works with transit. Yeah, one of the best ways, and studies of Uber, Lyft, and others have shown, with commuter rail, solving that last mile problem of a shared vehicle, not necessarily the an owned vehicle, but in some cases it could be privately owned, taking people to uh, a railroad station or taking people to an outlying subway station. That's a great use of these vehicles. That could be a terrific help. The problem is that some of the AV manufacturers are pretending that these vehicles all lined up together, moving on on a highway, could be like a train. And in fact, they call it a road train. It's not a train. There's two people or one person every 30 or 40 feet. I don't know the last time you got on a subway that had 30 or 40 feet between you and the next person. So it doesn't have the capacity, and they're misleading people. So a real fear for a place like New York City, and we've seen it before, is the deterioration of our transit system, capturing so many transit riders, beginning that vicious cycle in which we lose riders, we cut back on service, we cut back on service, we need more revenue, we raise fares. We saw that through the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, and we saw it around the United States, and we hollowed out many cities. I have a fear that we could hollow out a lot of cities again with terrible destruction that we saw. By the time the 1960s came around, we had riots in city after city. And part of it, a big part of it, was the hollowing out of cities. And we also have the cab drivers, the delivery drivers, the drivers who are working for Uber right now. They move on in theory to something new, but that won't be easy. Uh, The problem with why it won't be easy, people, we have made transitions in the past. We watched here in New York City the toll collectors disappear over some period of time with easy pass. But that was a 25 to 30-year period. This is going to happen in a blink of an eye, and suddenly a lot of truck drivers will be without jobs. A lot of uh, There's 150,000 people that drive either taxis or Uber or Lyfts or car services in New York City. Many of them will be without jobs. It's the speed. When you can attrit people out over a period of time, you could figure out a solution. Right now, one of the things I say in my book is the transit unions ought to right now figure out their future. How could they make this a good future for their workers? 
One way is to have their workers learn how to maintain these vehicles. It could be a boom for transit if we do it right. We could have lots of microtransit. Why send out a 40-foot or a 60-foot bus when you have eight passengers in it? We could send out twice as many buses for the same cost, and then we'll have more people having to maintain these vehicles. And yet there's also a crowd of people that are listening And they say, I'm never going to get into one of these vehicles, one of these self-driving vehicles. As you point out, we've already, however, negated that argument by getting on the elevator and pushing the button. You buy, you know, go into the monorail at Disney World. There's no one driving. Well, I think there is a driver on the monorail still. But there are other people moving systems in which there's no one at the controls and you're just sitting there alone watching the scenery go by. Yeah, here at JFK Airport, the air train, nobody is driving you. Um, it's, It's essentially the same concept of an elevator. 110, 115 years ago, as we began to automate elevators, people said, I'll never get on an elevator uh, without an operator. A lot of people, uh, older people, may say that. The younger people have incredible faith in technology. Many of them aren't even getting driver's licenses. Many of them are getting around by Ubers and Lyfts. Many of those people will go trust the technology and get an, into an autonomous vehicle. They're already doing it in, in Silicon Valley. They've been doing it to some extent in places in Arizona, well-controlled areas. It's going to happen. The closest we are coming to this, I think, currently would be something like a Tesla with the autopilot. You're talking about a very expensive vehicle there. But you argue that, or you've listened to the experts telling you, that over time, as more and more of these vehicles are churned out, the price of them, like like phones, it's going to come down. Yeah. Right now, uh, there are several companies. I, I think Waymo is really in the lead. And Waymo is looking at driverless technology, not even having a driver to correct things in case of a problem. Uh, so we're, we're going to have uh, driverless vehicles uh, very quickly, and people are going to have to trust those vehicles. It's not just the autopilots of the Tesla, it's GM Cruise that's looking to have this be a fully driverless vehicle. Uh, They're operating right now in San Francisco. They're operating on parts of California. California's in the lead. Cruise tried to come into New York City, but I think it was too complicated to figure it out. But eventually they'll be here. You say eventually. Is this something that that we will enjoy in our lifetimes, or is this something that is going to be a 50-year-and-beyond time frame? It's it's both. First of all, the word enjoy. Many of us will not get to enjoy it. We're going to be on the other end. We're going to be in, in other vehicles that are hesitating now because these vehicles are hesitating. We may be pedestrians seeing far more traffic. Uh, but yes, by 2021, we'll probably see a few of them, which is just two years away, on, on New York streets. We'll see a few of them. Uh, by 2025, you're going to see 2 3 4% of the population, even here, be in autonomous driving mode. By 2035, you'll have a sizable chunk. It'll be like Easy Pass came in. Uh, you're going to see quite a few vehicles. By mid-century, uh, you'll see that most of the vehicles will be autonomous. By the second half, half of the century, there'll be a movement to not allow anyone to drive their own car. There'll be a movement at that time, I predict, where people will wear hats, whatever color, that says, make America drive again. <laughs> it's coming, right? It's coming. 
And these are not just cars we're talking about, but really environments that will be that we'll be riding in and and living in in a way and working in. There's a real chance to remake the whole idea of transportation here. Yeah, Volvo has uh, just put out a YouTube about a month ago, and essentially, <clears throat> in the morning you have your your coffee, you have uh, then you have your meeting there, and uh, then you go through the day doing your work. In the evening, uh, dinner is served. I don't know if a drone comes and brings it in, in and you have a little romantic- In the car, in the vehicle. In the car, and you have a romantic dinner, and then it turns into a bed, and you never have to leave the vehicle. There was a film a few years ago called Wall-E, in which your chair becomes autonomous. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was an exaggeration. When I saw the Volvo commercial, it's no exaggeration. Hotels are worried now. Because you'll be able to take one of these vehicles, and instead of spend the night in the hotel, you'll spend the night in your vehicle, go to your meetings, come back. So a lot of business people may very well use this. Airlines, for the short-haul trips, it makes no sense to go anywhere within 500 or even 1,000 miles where you could do that in one of these vehicles, take a nap, do your work. And by the time, all the time it takes you to get to the airport, to get through security, to then get on a plane, to sit on a tarmac, have some probability of not getting there, airline flights 500 miles or less or even 1,000 are going to be reduced quite a bit. And people will take advantage of that. And in many ways, that's a good thing. How long have you been taking a look at this issue? And it, it, it sounds to me like you're a bit of a fan. I, I I like the technology. I like the good parts of the technology, the safety. But the fact is we don't have to wait for it to be driverless. We already have automatic braking in some vehicles. We already have lane controls in some vehicles. We have blind spot warning in some vehicles, but it's usually the high-end vehicles. So we allow safety for those people who could afford it. If you can't afford it, you're not going to have the safety. So what I really like about it are the safety features. I like what it could do with for people who don't own cars. If we have shared rides as opposed to individually owned, we could deal with equity and other things. That's the good part. But I am worried about the bad parts. Uh, are you confident that the system will be secure, the people that you had a chance to talk to who are involved in this? What do they tell you about the security of the system and whether it might get hacked and hijacked? Yeah, almost everybody I've spoke to and I interviewed for the book said <clears throat> there's nothing that is unhackable. We haven't discovered anything that we believe is 100% proof. Um, and they've used hackers to try to get into these vehicles, and they've used hackers to try to confuse these vehicles. So hackers can get into the vehicle. Hackers could also get to the traffic signs and make a stop sign look like it says speed limit 45 miles an hour just by changing a couple of things that a driver wouldn't even notice. So there's a whole counterterrorism effort that's being made right now to ensure that there's a minimal risk of that. One of the things that I call for is every uh, major city has a traffic control center. In that center, you begin to look and see if vehicles aren't obeying the rules and regulations you notify authorities beforehand. We suffered in New York City with, with a terrorist riding on a bike and pedestrian path. Uh, we've seen it in Barcelona. We've seen it in Nice and in Germany. Uh, cars used as weapons without any bombs in them. 
That is a real fear, and there is a whole counterterrorism effort. I believe they will get 99.999% successful. Someone will get through. It's, it's a fascinating subject, Sam. We could talk about it all day. I get the feeling that we just kind of scratched at the surface here. But if you're wondering where we're going and how we're going to get there, take a look at Sam Schwartz's new book, No One at the Wheel. Thank you. Thank you very much. When we last spoke to author Howard Kaplan, his novel, The Damascus Cover, was about to hit the big screen. He's back, this time with his new international spy thriller, To Destroy Jerusalem. He spoke to our Pat Farnack about why he again chose to set his new book in this conflicted part of the world. I'm still very interested in Middle East reconciliation, in seeing both sides, Israelis and Palestinians, as human. And one of my attributes seems to be is that I'm very even-handed, and I get good reviews in the Israeli press, in the Arab press, and the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. So this is what I'm always looking for, is trying to find solutions to this conflict through a ex- potentially exciting story. Do you think that we will ever see peace in the Holy Land in our lifetime? I think it's getting tougher. You know, maybe the part of me that's maybe more optimistic feels sometimes if things get really bad, maybe that's a point where change is possible. But since I've been going to the region for 30 years or more, we have almost a downward spiral in terms of relationships. There are some optimistic things. For example, Saudi Arabia and some of the Arab countries in the Gulf are now eager to recognize Israel. It may not be for the purest of motives, meaning it's a front against Iran, which is Shiite, and all of them are Sunni. But, you know, I suppose you take friends where you can get them. And that's sort of what To Destroy Jerusalem is about, isn't it? Your main character is also, before we get to that, he's going through something. Is it is it a midlife crisis or is it more than that? He's been at the top of his game for such a long time. Do you think he is thinking about getting out? I don't think he's thinking about getting out. This is a time when things are extremely difficult for him, but... There actually is a later novel uh, set way in the future called The Spy's Gamble, where he has come together, lost weight, gotten remarried, and doing well. Well, so to speak, as much as a spy can do. Your your comic relief is just right. You provide a little bit of a pause from all the drama in your book when he decides he's going to start eating right. He's going to exercise in the pool. He's taken up eating apples. That is hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) I do have a friend in Jerusalem uh, whose name is Avraham Infeld. He may not like my using his name. A very prominent educator and a very close friend of mine. And the character has striking resemblances to him. And Avraham's kind of a stubborn guy. Like, he hates apples. So that's how we got... Uh, apples into the story, because he's a guy who likes to force himself into challenges. So if he stops smoking, he carries around cigarettes in his pocket to make sure that he won't smoke further. And if he's going to start eating healthy, he's going to start with stuff he hates. So... I like contrary people, so I sort of enjoy that. I loved it because who hates apples? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I have a Fuji apple tree in my front 
backyard in, nice. in California. We're just picking the fruit now. Oh, that's really nice. And, and on the dark side, your Khalidi, is that, did I say that right? The Khalidi character, right, yes. it reminded me of so many of these people who are caught planting pipe bombs and shooting up schools. And I mean, he was such a, a dark loner character, but you've made him an academic, which is interesting. Yes. Well, part of that was just plot driven in mm-hmm. that uh, the story has to do with building a nuclear weapon and smuggling it into Israel. So it wasn't so much that I had the idea, let's write a novel about an academic mm-hmm. character, but mm-hmm. I needed a physicist to make this plot work. And then I had to create ideas of how to get the bomb into Israel. So I'm waiting for my Israeli intelligence friends, because the book's new, it's only out a week, uh, to tell me how I did and if they're worried that I did a little too good of a job at getting plutonium into Israel. So if you would, sketch for us the plot without giving too much away. (laughs) Part of the central motivating event for Khalidi, and I do this pretty much in all my books, I take real events in the Middle East and then put fictional characters through them. So this, this scene in Beta in the West Bank is an actual true event where some Israeli settler kids with guards started going on a hike to springs mm-hmm. uh, near an Arab village, and it all went bad. And accident- accidentally, the Israeli guard killed one of the Jewish kids. By He just wheeled around. He was scared. There were Palestinians around him. Her name is Tirza Parat. And Khalidi happens, I put him in that village to see these events. And because he already has these propensities and these kind of people we see now who just sent pipe bombs, as you exactly mentioned, he decides that he wants to, to create a nuclear weapon, which he's capable of doing, and, forcing, and smuggling into Israel to force the Israelis to withdraw from the Palestinian territories. And the Israelis come on to this early on in the plot. Uh, the American CIA, there's plutonium stolen in Manhattan, in fact, in Sloan Kettering, which is also accurate. I went and found out there are four hospitals in the world that use this kind of californium, which is a neutron source, in radiation therapy for patients and he then contacts an old friend of his, Ramsey Awad, who is a Palestinian writer of great renown. And they have worked together in a previous novel of mine, actually called Bullets of Palestine. And they have, for me, they're the metaphor for the Middle East. There's an Israeli and a Palestinian working together or not working together based on any given time in the history of the conflict to try to find a solution. At this point in their relationship, they're not doing well. They're at sort of a nadir, both of them. And the plot moves forward to bring this weapon into Jerusalem. They think it's Tel Aviv, actually. So that's mm-hmm. part of the sleight of hand that they're, they convince the Israelis the weapon. So the Israelis are looking in Tel Aviv for a plutonium that's in Jerusalem. And funny, it's been posted on my Facebook page. And suddenly, I have Arabs from all over the world uh, write, uh, 
looking at it, you know, hundreds from, I don't know where it came from. I think there were 103,000 views last week. And I'm not sure if they're worried because there's a picture of the mosque, the great mosque on the Temple Mount on my cover. And I'm not sure if they're worried about destroying the mosque or not, but it's kind of interesting. And nobody writes me. I don't know what they're saying. They're just looking at the post and liking it. And maybe they're reading the book, hopefully. (laughs) Now, your your drama is so believable. And when we first talked, you were telling me about a brush that you had with the world of spies early in your life, which probably got you down going down this road. It did start. I went in my when I was 21 into the then Soviet Union to bring out a manuscript on microfilm to London. The the way the Soviets operated were they were just beginning to let people go to leave the country, Jews in particular, maybe only Jews. And they, they said that any artwork or any manuscripts, any books that anybody had written that weren't published, and of course they weren't published because of the censors there, mm. were property of the state and could not be taken with them when they immigrated. And these days, you know, we didn't have computers or those kind of files. So somebody produced a microfilm version of one of these books for me to take out, and I was successful. And then a year later, I went back to bring in Hebrew textbooks. Uh, This is pretty early on in this Soviet Jewry movement. And I was arrested on the 10th day of a 14-day tour in uh, Ukraine. How long were you held? I was held for four days. Oh. Uh, we had a plan that sort of worked out. I was actually treated well. Uh, at first, I was in KGB headquarters. Then I was in room arrest in the hotel. And I was interrogated in the hotel manager's office with a translator. And I could eat when I wanted and have bathroom breaks. They were very cognizant that I was an American. The Russians I was arrested with were not treated as well. Some of them were beaten while at the time that I was just pushed up against a wall walking to the trolley. Uh, And we convinced them, I convinced them, that the man who had sent me had not given me any of his contact information, and I didn't know how to reach him, but he said he would meet my scheduled flight at Heathrow Airport. And the idea was, was to get the Russians to expel me on my scheduled flight and follow me if that's what they wanted to do. And that's exactly what they did. And they did, in fact, follow me in London, and they were picked up outside the airport. Well, a great story as usual. We've been talking with Howard Kaplan and his latest book, Just Out, To Destroy Jerusalem. Thanks so much, Howard. Do you remember books like The Babysitter's Club, Sweet Valley High, The Dollhouse Murders, Fear Street? If you answered yes, then our next book is most definitely for you. Author Gabrielle Moss has written a history of those bubblegummy teen fiction books of the 80s and 90s women of a certain age, yours truly included, remember. It's called Paperback Crush, and she tells me how her obsession started. Well, I am someone who grew up uh, obsessively, there's the word, uh, reading these books. You know, I would read 10 Babysitter's Club Sweet Valley High books in a week. I was, you know, the kid walking down the hallway in elementary school reading Marianne and Too Many Boys, Babysitter's Club 34. And um, 
you know, obviously I, I grew up, um, uh, but a few and, and stopped reading them all the time. But a few years ago, um, I was sort of feeling a little grumpy and thought I would cheer myself up by uh, buying myself a crate of Sweet Valley High books off eBay. And I thought it would, you know, just kind of be some, some harmless, fluffy nostalgia. And it was that, but um, I started to become very interested in understanding the impact that, you know, reading so many of these books had on me and other young women uh, at the time. You know, I think there's kind of an understanding now, say, about Harry Potter that, you know, kids raised reading Harry Potter, it, you know, shaped their whole lives. But uh, I feel like there's been less of a conversation about that, about how these books shaped our whole lives. And uh, the deeper and deeper I got into reading them, the more I realized that, you know, Babysitter's Club probably had a greater impact on my adult life and values than my parents did. So when we talk about a crate, how many books are we talking about? Uh, The first order was somewhere between 30 and 50 books. You know, you can buy a lot of them on eBay. The first order. How many orders have there been since? Um, I am currently sharing a very small New York apartment with about 300 books total. So um, if anyone has any idea about how I should store them, that would be great. They're just on chairs right now. (laughs) So these books, they were fun. They were gossipy, even though they weren't like any real girl that I don't think either one of us knew that these were the lives that they were leading. Is that why? No, not at all. Right. Is that why they kind of have a bad rap? You know, I think they have a bad rap because when you pick one one up now, like the stuff that was um, totally regressive and negative is the stuff that jumps out at you immediately. And, you know, I should be clear, there is a lot of negative stuff in these books. You know, there is uh, bad stuff about body image. Everyone is white. Everyone is rich. You know, it's not diverse at all. And so I think you know, my instinct picking these up was like, oh, you know, this is going to be like entertaining, but it's going to be terrible. It's just going to have bad messages. And, you know, I think the truth is there are certainly bad messages. Uh, You know, they they were not all very progressive, but there are also some good messages mixed in with them. So what do you think those good messages were? Well, when I got sort of into, uh, into really reading all of these again, I realized that you know, my a lot of my ideas about careers and friendship had been uh, formed by these books, which are, you know, something like Babysitter's Club or Sleepover Friends. You know, it almost takes the, the romance novel formula, but instead of being about, you know, a lover, it's about your friends. You love your friends. You're obsessed with your friends. You'll do anything for your friends. And I think, you know, I and a lot of women my age continue to have those kind of relationships with our friends, even as, you know, we've gotten older, gotten married, started families. These friendships play such a role in our lives. And, you know, I think I learned that from these books. Um, Similarly, I think I picked up a lot of career ideas from the Babysitter's Club. You know, I was raised in a home where people just worked to make money and no one really talked about the idea of following a, a great passion. And I think, you know, Christy taught me about following a great passion. Um, you know, I think the thing that separates these books from a lot of earlier YA books is that they're they're all about thriving. They're about people being healthy and happy and trying to help each other succeed. And, you know, I feel like a lot of us reading these kind of internalize the idea that, yeah, like, that's my right. I should be healthy and happy and succeed, and I should help my friends do the same. 
You know, in reading your book, because I'm I'm in this generation with you, and as I was flipping through it, I'm like, oh my god, I remember that one. Oh my god, I remember that one. Um, I was really struck, though, that you know they're almost like a time capsule of what the era was, because you know yeah. the the late '80s, the early '90s, everybody was really optimistic. There was that whole dot com bubble, and YA now has gotten very dark. It's very apocalyptic almost, you know, in that post 9-11 sense. Do you do you see the books as being that way as well? Um, I think that there are definitely uh, sort of trends and cycles and sort of that cycle from kind of the upbeat 80s, 90s YA to the darker YA we're seeing now is pretty similar to um, the cycle between 50s and early 60s YA, which were, uh, those were called malt shop novels. And that's, you know, the culture that Nancy Drew, the original Nancy Drew came out of, and were just kind of these wholesome books about like teenage girls, you know, hanging out, being on the prom committee. And then um, in the late 60s, there was a switch over to books that were all about social issues. So you had, you know, stuff like The Outsiders, the kind of things we think of as classic YA that are about, you know, divorces, drug addiction, you know, darker, more serious problems. And I think sort of in the early 80s, that whole cycle reset itself. We again had the wholesome, wholesome novels that suggested there was nothing rougher going on in a young woman's life than, you know, having something bad happen at school. And we're now in the in the darker cycle again. I should also uh, say, I feel like I'm making this book sound super serious. It is mostly just a <laughs> celebration of Marianne and Too Many Boys, Babysitter's Club number 34. It's not super serious. No, and definitely isn't. I love the, the style in which you wrote it, which, you know, you kind of poke fun at yourself a little bit. But I think when we look back at our younger selves and maybe what we were reading, what we were consuming, what we were obsessed with, it, it makes sense to, to kind of be a little tongue in cheek. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to have a sense of humor going back to this stuff. Like, you know, even as I'm sitting here being like, Babysitter's Club changed my life. I'm like, oh, God, Babysitter's <laughs> Club changed your life. Like, you sound ridiculous. So, you know, I think you looking back at these, you just have to have fun with it. You can acknowledge, you know, how important they were to you while also acknowledging that they, some of them are very silly when you look back at them. You know, I loved Sweet Valley High and, uh, Nothing in those books makes any sense as an adult. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, the favorite one of mine that you included was The Dollhouse Murders. Oh, my God. That one holds up. Absolutely. And I also find that as I was reading, like you, you've you split these books, uh, your book, into the different kind of genres or story themes that they would tackle. And that whole yes. danger and terror thing that you've got going, that was basically made up the bulk of my reading when I was a kid. <laughs> and now as an adult, I tend to drift towards those books as well. And so I wonder, hmm, I think uh, the the ground was laid very early on. I think, yeah, the ground was laid for a lot of us. And, you know, I also gravitated towards a lot of those books uh, when I was a kid. And, you know, as an adult, I, that is a lot of what I read in my free time when I'm not rereading uh, Babysitter's Club books. <laughs> so here's an interesting thing, though, that you cite in the book is that about 53% of young adult readers are over the age of 18. So what's... Yeah. What's the appeal of book that's written, quote, unquote, for kids? I mean, you know, I think there was uh, a huge change sort of around Harry Potter and after that, where people started thinking of, you know, why books as more sophisticated and something that an adult could enjoy. You know, I'm I was a little old to read Harry Potter when it came out, so I only read it a few years ago. And, you know, it's of there's a level of care and literary quality there and in a lot of modern YA that was not necessarily um, 
present in earlier YA. So it is, YA now is almost a different animal because there is, I think, a thought in a lot of it that readers from, you know, 10 to 50 are going to be reading it now. It's more sophisticated, not so bubblegummy, I guess. Yeah, yeah, you know, these books uh, from the 80s and 90s, they were written with the expectation that, like, no one over the age of 15 was even going to know that these books existed. You know, they are very much speaking to children with no pretension of entertaining anyone any older. And, you know, there's something special about that, and there's also something, you know, about that that can lend itself to lower quality writing. So all of, you know, everything's a mixed blessing. So I know we've talked a lot about the Babysitter's Club. Out of all these books and the crates of books you have at home, do you have like one in particular that's a favorite? One single volume? Yes. Um, Well, uh, one one volume that I had a really great time rereading was uh, Caroline Cooney's Face on the Milk Carton, which is a... uh, a sort of thriller suspense book about a young girl who uh, finds out that she was kidnapped as a small child and that her parents are not her parents. Uh, And I have very vivid memories of reading that uh, as a tween. And, you know, I was at an age where I was thinking, oh, I don't like fit into my family. Like who, how are my parents even my parents? And, you know, I read that and thought, what if they're not? (laughs) which I think is an experience a lot of a lot of women of our generation had. And so it was very interesting to, you know, and great to, to go back in and reconnect with that. You know, I recommend to anyone, uh, you know, go back to the books from your childhood and just give them give them another shot. You'll learn a lot about yourself and the world and um, also what people considered good fashion at the time, which is really funny. Um, <laughs> it was the 80s. Oh, <laughs> uh, some some of the outfit descriptions in these books you will you will lose your mind. Silk jumpsuits, pointy leather lizard boots. It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gabby Moss, thank you so much for this trip down memory lane. It's really been a treat. I know for me, and hopefully for some of our listeners uh, who uh, kind of fall into the same generation as we do. Yeah, no, I hope uh, I hope people can can just use this book to. Check out of our very rough reality for a few minutes. The new book is Paperback Crush, the totally radical history of 80s and 90s teen fiction. Definitely put it on your uh, in your to be red pile. And that's this week's podcast. Next time we take a break from the hectic holiday season with books that highlight the peacefulness of the outdoors. Until then, breathe in. And breathe out. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.